Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Today we are talking about Deep Space Nine. This is the third episode of our Love and Affection series. I mean, Whoa. gee, ain't it funny how time just slips away? <laughs> <laughs> well said, that one dude, <laughs> that one song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, I cannot believe we are here at episode three of our Love and Affection series. That is so crazy. I am very proud of us and proud of all of you for sticking <laughs> I don't know why, but... Yeah, I'm proud too, because this is kind of a different series than we've done before. It's kind of in the middle between watching one episode to review and watching 30 to review. <laughs> we're only watching 10 or 11, and we're not talking about specific characters necessarily, but about these themes of love and affection. And so it's been interesting and really fun to see how each podcast ends up going. Rhian and I don't really talk too much about what we're going to talk about for the podcast because we want it to be organic. It's just fun for me to see where our conversation takes us. And I absolutely adore all these episodes of Deep Space Nine that we watched to prepare for this podcast. So Rihanna, will you tell them what we watched? We watched the episodes Fascination, Looking for Par Mach in All the Wrong Places, The Ascent, Ferengi Love Songs, Call to Arms, You Are Cordially Invited, Change of Heart, His Way, The Sound of Her Voice, Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, It's Only a Paper Moon, and the last scene in Tell Death Do Us Part. Yes. So as you can tell, this is going to be a little bit different from how we structured the Next Generation podcast, because we're not going to be going character by character necessarily, but really just focusing on the episodes. So I'm excited to just jump in here. But Rihanna, first, I'm wondering, what is your favorite ship in Deep Space Nine? My favorite ship is Dr. Bashir and Garrick. Oh, it's not a canon ship, sadly. Even though Andrew Robinson was like screaming into the void to make it canon, <laughs> and even Alexander Siddig was very interested in making this canon, and the writers have talked about how they should have made it canon. So we just got so close to Bashir and Garrick becoming an actual couple, and that would have been revolutionary. But regardless, they still are pretty much a couple. I mean, come on, they're so close. They only hang out with each other. Garrick is the only man for him. So I yeah. love to see it. And I just think they're adorable and perfect. And a couple you would not have imagined would fall in love with each other, but I really think they did. So that's my selection for my favorite ship. Ashlyn, what about you? Honestly, it's really hard to come up with just one because there are so many pairings I love. I love both canon pairings and non-canon for DS9. Mm -hmm. I think my very favorite one is Bashir and O'Brien, actually. Ooh, yeah, nice. because, I mean, there's so many spicy scenes with them because O'Brien can never talk about his feelings. But every time he gets close, he always ends up saying something like, I'm glad I have you as a friend, Julian, you know, and I'm yeah. just like, oh, my heart beats. Whenever they're drunk together. <laughs> and oh. there's a definite scene where O'Brien almost professes his love to Julian. So you're absolutely right. 
Also, something that has really been sticking in my mind recently, mostly because we have so many amazing Twitter followers and friends on Star Trek Twitter, there are so many people that ship Kira and Dax that I have started to see it too. And Same. Yeah, Rihanna and I texted about this very briefly, but I cannot unsee it now. And I'm like, oh man, they would be a perfect couple. Yeah. Yeah. Think about how hard it was for Worf to have Esri on board. I also think about how hard it's got to be for people like Kira who possibly could have been in love with her and to then see Esri who holds her memories but doesn't feel the same way. Oof. Oof. That's a doozy. (laughs) (laughs) Oof is right. Yeah. That that pairing has been sticking in my mind. And then, of course, I love all the canon ones like Dax and Worf, Sisko and Cassidy, Odo and Quark is canon too, you know. (laughs) Photo right every day of the week. (laughs) There's an amazing outtake where Armin Shimmer and Rene Arbenois uh, actually kiss yes. in one of the bloopers and outtake. It's the scene where Odo's leaving and it's just fantastic. I'll try to find it and put it on our Twitter because it is so good. I'm in a very Ooh. love and affection mood now. <laughs> yeah, same. That really got me there. Yeah. <laughs> so Ashlyn, I would like to first talk about the episode Fascination, which I know gets a lot of flack, but it is an amazing episode. I think it's so funny. And we had to talk about it for our Love and Affection series, even though it's fabricated love and affection, similar to how some of the episodes in the original series were. You know, you always got some weird spore sex pollen going around, and this is sort of the same vibe. It's not Star Trek if there's not weird sex things happening. So I first wanted to lay out who is attracted to who in this episode, because it's kind of a crazy web. So Jake is attracted to Kira who's attracted to Bashir, and Bashir is also attracted to Kira. Vedic Burial is attracted to Judzia Dax, but Dax is attracted to Sisko. Loaxana is attracted to Odo. Quark is attracted to Keiko, but Keiko and O'Brien are just regularly attracted, as always. <laughs> yes, yes. And Sisko, no attraction. <laughs> no. He does not involve himself in this. Head empty, only command thoughts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. This really reminds me of Midsummer's Night Dream, you know, which I think yes. might have been something they were aiming for because they're obsessed with Shakespeare. Then we have Loaxana acting as the unwilling fairy dust. Who's that person? P- Pluck? Um, Puck. Puck. <laughs> Puck. Yeah, not Puck. <laughs> She's the unwilling Puck in this scenario where every time she has an attack of betazoid menopause around mm-hmm. someone, they get a headache and then they are infatuated with whoever's around. But you have to have some sort of latent attraction to them. Even if it's unconscious, even if it's deeply buried in your subconscious. <laughs> yeah, and that's what makes this fun is realizing that, oh, some tiny, tiny part in Quark's soul is attracted to Keiko. <laughs> I would never have guessed in my entire life. Like, I if anyone, I thought Quark was going to go after Dax, but. <laughs> yes, me too. That's what I would have expected, but no. The element of this episode that makes it so fun, you're right, is the fact that Jake is somehow attracted to Kira, which I can't blame him. Kira's amazing. I'm attracted to Kira, not even subconsciously, just outright. (laughs) I'm attracted to Kira, and I think of myself as pretty straight, but I always had a crush on Kira growing up. Just, oh, there's something about her, you know? Yeah. I mean, she's just a heartbreaker all over the ship, so it makes sense. But something that's sort of a fun fact that I love about this episode, too, is that I think the reason that they had Bashir and Kira be attracted to each other is because Nana Visitor and Alexander Siddig were married at the time. Yes, I love this fact. 
Yeah, so that's really great because then you actually get to see their chemistry because we don't obviously have that pairing anywhere else in the series. Thank God, I don't want Kira and Julian to ever be together. But it's really cute in this moment because it just feels like the actors showing off how much they love each other and how they can't keep their hands off each other. It's just, you can really sense the chemistry there. So I liked that they added that in. As a performer myself, I've had to do onstage kisses before. And my most memorable one was during my undergrad with someone who was a gay guy and I was dating my current boyfriend at the time and so it was a very awkward kiss scene and we <laughs> did not pull it off and I know we didn't because we didn't want to be kissing. To be a professional actor you have to get comfortable with that and so they understand because they're both actors that whatever the character calls for you have to kiss them but so yeah. I just hope that they felt really unreserved you know they just had permission for once in their life to be able to just make out on screen and have this <laughs> hilarious moment where they're like, we can't even take our hands off each other. They're aware that this is weird what's happening, but they're so into it. <laughs> I also think about the other actors and how they dealt with these kind of scenes because I think about Terry Farrell and Avery Brooks having to interact in that way was probably so much fun. And oh my hilarious. gosh. Yes, so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also want to talk a bit about the O'Brien Keiko plot in this because it's sort of a subplot. Luckily, and I love this about the episode, is that O'Brien is never infected by Lawaxana and neither is Keiko. And their love for each other is just true and real and not fabricated. And that's a really important lesson for them to learn in this episode because they're really struggling. I mean, understandably, Keiko has been gone on Bajor for quite a few months doing a survey of the flora and fauna there. And she says it might be another six months before she can come back to the station. And O'Brien is just distraught. He played 70 games of <laughs> racquetball with Julian. Clearly, he's needing his wife back with him. It's just hard. I'd really like to see them talking it out. The first half of the episode, they are not, though. They are fighting and Keiko's in a terrible mood because Lawaxana was on her ride back from Bajor, which would put anyone in a terrible mood, to be honest. And poor Molly throws up on Miles, you know, because yeah. the Waxana was giving her too much candy, which made me think about those Wharf episodes hanging out with the Waxana. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. And I think that this is something that we talked about in our family series, but something I really do appreciate about Keiko and Miles is that they are truly the actual reality of what it's like to be married a lot of the times. You know, I think that this is one of the most realistic relationships in Star Trek because they don't shy away from their tough moments and they tend to show how, yeah, your wife's coming home from this long shuttle ride. Molly's sick. She's obviously miserable. She is not embracing O'Brien in her arms and they're having this lovely reunion. No, there's all of this weird timing that I think they're out of sync. You can tell. And I think the actors do a really good job in this scene. Sort of like when you haven't seen your partner in a while and you come back and you're just a little bit off kilter. And this episode is just the perfect backdrop for that because it really does show at the end that, hey, we really love each other without any betazoid infection going around. Yeah, they're a nice juxtaposition in this episode because everyone else is having fantasy relationships. I've had a couple of long distance relationships and I can totally attest that this is how it goes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is when you know you're going to see your partner for the first time in a long time, the anticipation is so high 
And there's so much pressure to have a perfect moment back together because you've been dreaming about it for months and Mm. months. And so I thought that this scene of them reuniting again was really accurate to how it normally goes. I sometimes spend whole summers apart from my boyfriend because of different circumstances. And I've learned now to have very low expectations about Mm. that reunion because it does take you a couple days. I mean, Rihanna and I, as close sisters as we are, whenever we're back in person, the first couple days is also weird. I think especially now that we're all going through this pandemic, it's hard to get used to people in person. Like Ashlyn and I went home a couple weeks ago and it was super great to be home and be around my family again, but I had not spent any time around anyone but my girlfriend in like four months. Literally, I was only interacting with her and some random strangers on the streets. And so it's definitely an adjustment. And I think for Miles, it's hard because I think he really does function more as a quality time person, like as his love language. I feel like that's what he wants out of a relationship. And Keiko is not really able to give that right now because she's exhausted. Her head's probably half still thinking about what she has to do on her next survey or what her next piece of work is going to be. I think that Keiko's love language is more words of affirmation and acts of service, or at least that's what she needs from O'Brien in this episode. Also, she's been basically a single mom this whole time down Mm -hmm. on the planet. And that's really hard in itself. And I know Miles wishes he could have gone with them and wishes he could help out as a dad. But Mm -hmm. he literally can't. That's just a lot of dynamics in the relationship. And so no wonder those two days together is kind of fraught with drama and all this craziness. But I did love their reconciliation at the end. And I love when O'Brien punches Quark. (laughs) I thought was really great. Well, and the fact that Miles decides to resign his commission, he says he put a resignation letter on Cisco's desk. And that is the act of service that I think tilted her over. I mean, she still needed time to think because she's going through a lot. I think sometimes you just need a reminder when you're in a relationship with someone who's so career focused that you are more important than their Mm. career. That's a huge thing. Just continue to remind your partner. And especially in this relationship, they're both career driven. But Mm -hmm. I think Keiko, unfortunately, takes some of the more maternal duties, I think also because she wants to. But I wondered if they had talked about a situation where Miles has Molly for the next six months, you know, because it's not like Keiko's breastfeeding at this point anymore. Mm -mm. So I don't know. I wish they had explored a little bit more of that co-parenting option, but I love this episode. It's honestly my comfort episode of DS9. Mm -hmm. And I was very shocked to hear that so many people didn't like it because Rihanna and I basically watched DS9 in a vacuum with no other people to talk about it with. And so now that we're having so many interactions with other Star Trek fans, I I am shocked to see that no one likes fascination, but I adore this episode. And also before we move on, I think my favorite line in it is when Jake is obsessing over Kira and he goes up to her and he says, I love you, Norris. You want to go out with me? (laughs) (laughs) It's perfectly delivered as a line. And it's just totally encapsulates how you feel when you're 16. You're like, I love them. It's like that Bruno Mars song, like, I catch a grenade for you. So like, you want to go out? (laughs) Exactly. Oh, that is such a good point, Ashlyn. And Pelter Joy to you. Uh, Pelter Joy to you as well. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> so now we would like to move on to the episode looking for Parmok in all the wrong places. Now, Ashlyn, you mentioned that Fascination was your comfort episode. This is my comfort episode. I've seen this episode, I can't even count how many times. So it was really fun to watch it through this love and affection lens because it's got some amazing players in this episode. We have Grilka, who is seriously one of my favorite Klingons. She's so awesome. And we have Quark courting this Klingon, which I would never have guessed this as to be a plot. And Worf is also attracted to Grilka, but doesn't realize literally what's staring him right in the face, which is what Dax tells him. And he's like, only someone blind could not see it. And Dax is like, yeah, you're blind. Let's fight. I want to talk a bit about this Quark-Grilka relationship because they were married at one point. I didn't even know that Quark was married and he because he never talks about it, but it seems that it was just a marriage of convenience because Grilka needed to marry a man so that she could have a position in her house. Not only that, so she could leave the planet. Yeah. So that crazy? I did not, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like no, the injustice that Klingon women cannot leave the planet if they're unmarried, what? The beep and beep? What? Yeah. It's the and same on Ferenkinar. I know, which is why it's so surprising that Quark married her. He also, I think, liked her more than she liked him at first, which makes sense because they're very different. I mean, it, he's definitely the reacher in this relationship. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> he's the settler, 100%. Uh-huh. So Dax is telling Worf their background because I love that Dax just knows the life story of every one of her friends because she's just such a good friend and listener and everything. Dax is sort of implying that Quark still has feelings for her. They actually have a discussion about it. I think it's Grilka who's like, are you here just for sex? And he's like, no, actually. He's like, surprisingly enough, I also want to have a relationship with you and get to know you better. Which for Quark, I think he's kind of all bark and no bite when it comes to actual sex and attraction with people. He's got Dabo girls on each arm, but I don't think he's actually banging any of them. And so, yes, I think Quark wants to have sex, but I think he also is just very attracted to the way that Grilka is, her strength and her humor and her cunningness, it matches up with Quark's really well. So I just thought that this was such an interesting plot because we get to see Quark actually wanting to be with someone and actually having an interest where before it's just Latinum and his bar. That's really all he cares about. Yeah, what did you think about this episode, Ashlyn? I also love it. It's one of my favorite ones as well on DS9. I did not really believe Quark, honestly, that he really wanted a relationship with Grilka. I honestly thought he was like, hey, we used to be married. This should be an easy fling. Like, this (laughs) is someone who I can just quickly get with and then move on because I don't think he really wants that long term of a relationship because it's not like she's going to be on DS9 forever. She's just here for, I think, meeting with Cisco or I don't know, she's an ambassador or something. Grilka's awesome. I really like her a lot and I absolutely adore how they set up these two couples throughout this episode because we have Grilka and Quark trying to get together and then we have Dax and Worf who are helping them. And so Rihanna, I'm going to ask you the same thing that Worf asked himself in this episode. Uh Why is Worf helping Quark get the crush of his life? I think he wants to prove that he can court a Klingon woman because the crux of this episode is another Klingon general or someone who's hanging out with Grilka tells Worf 
it's okay, Worf. You just haven't ever been with Klingon women. So how would you know how to do it? And I think that really stung for Worf mm-hmm. because technically he has been with Klingon women. It's just they've been untraditional and not adhering to Klingon customs well, either. Well, only half Klingon because his True. mother of his child was only half, half Klingon. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he really hasn't, and it's true, but I think that really stung his ego. And so even if he can't have Grilka in that way, because he knows she's already pretty much rejected him, he can help Quark, and in the process, he can gain a pride, the fact that he was really the one who instigated this. Yeah, but it seems so odd because he really doesn't like Quark that much. And we see this throughout the series. I think also it's because Dax is there and also wants to help him. And I think subconsciously Worf wants to do what will make Dax happy, even if he doesn't realize that he's in love with her yet, or at least falling for her, catching feelings. (laughs) I do think it's kind of a combo. What do you think? Yeah, I love your answer. I was just curious. I kind of thought that maybe Worf was actually trying to help Quark because he was starting to like him more. Mm. And maybe there was some kind of respect building up between them because they have a not the same kind of rival relationship mm-hmm. that Quark has with Odo. But it's definitely a banter type relationship where Quark makes fun of how brutal or strong Worf is or makes fun of Klingons and then Worf bites back with some quip about Ferengis. Yeah. just racist jokes to each other um, <laughs> yeah. but it works and it's it's all very charming <laughs> so i don't know i thought that Worf respected that quark was even trying to get with someone as magnificent in Worf's words as grilka <laughs> i was just curious what you thought it was about like that a, a game recognized game <laughs> is that what the sort yeah. of yeah. yeah i think so yeah and just the fact that two characters who are so different could have crushes on the same women is really funny because we just talked about Quark does kind of have a thing for Dax too. And Mm -hmm. so they really have similar taste in really strong women. I think Quark is flamingly chaotic bisexual personally. (laughs) So I think anyone who is intelligent and kind of exotic and strong Quark is attracted to. Absolutely. This is why it's so funny that Worf is just completely blind to how into Worf Dax is. She is really putting on the moves this whole episode and he only realizes that at the end when she's like, computer, fatleth, I'm going to start courting you now because like I'm sick of this. And he <laughs> says you were the aggressor. <laughs> and so I just love this final scene where they're all going into the infirmary because Quark and Grilka had their fun times and then Worf and Dax come <laughs> in after having their fun times. <laughs> and so... It's just such a cute start to their relationship. I do think it's important, like with Riker and Troy, they do have good communication right off the bat. Sure, they don't really know what they are to each other yet, but they have a moment where they're talking about, well, now that we've partaken in this ritual, we need to get married. And Worf is like, but you're not a very traditional person. And essentially, they're like, let's just take it one day at a time. And Worf admits, he's like, I don't like the uncertainty of that situation. But then Dax's reply is, one thing is certain, you stopped thinking about Groka. She's like, I got your mind off of her. Let's just start from there. I understand from Worf's perspective, wanting more of a label or more of certainty of where this is going to go. But That's not really how Dax plays it. So I like that they can compromise. Yeah, I totally agree. Their communication is spot on. And I love every relationship that breaks the Disney formula that unfortunately appears so much in movies and TV Mm -hmm. shows these days. 
And I'm talking about where two people are attracted to each other and then they fall in love and it all works out and it's all great, but they never show you the nitty gritty and the detail about how hard both people work to stay together Mm -hmm. and to stay in love and to make it even past the honeymoon phase. And so I love that even though they have such clear communication, it doesn't take out the romance in it at all. And I think that's kind of a misconception. A lot of people think, well, if we talk everything through, it won't be romantic anymore. But that's not true at all because then both people are happy because they know what's going on. Exactly. (laughs) Duh. Talk to your partner. This is the sign. Please talk to your partner. I love the scene, of course, when Jensia just jumps on Worf like that. (laughs) Especially when you just said she yells for the Batleth and she starts speaking in Klingon. Worf turns around and he has the same look in his eyes that my cat has when I open a can of wet food. (laughs) He just spins around and he's like, what? Did you just say like, oh my God, he's so excited. (laughs) I love that. And I also love how Dax is the pursuer of Worf. Like you mentioned, she is really the one who is starting this relationship. And this inspired me when I was watching this in middle school and high school, because I am the aggressor generally in relationships. Mm -hmm. And I like to be the one to ask the guys out. Jadzia definitely inspired me. She showed me that you don't have to wait around for the guys to notice you or for anyone to notice you. You just have to be direct and then it's just a yes or no question. Big risk, big reward. So Absolutely. I love that they didn't do a back and forth, will they, won't they, for Worf and Jadzia. I mean, for Worf, it certainly came out of nowhere, in his opinion. I don't think he even realized Dax's attraction, Dax-traction. <laughs> but <laughs> Jadzia is not one to play games. Come she on. jokes around a lot, but she's here to win. <laughs> exactly. And she does, ultimately. There's a great scene in You Are Cordially Invited where Dax and Worf have decided to end their engagement because Dax doesn't want to go begging to her future mother-in-law and just refuses to put up with all these crazy Klingon rituals. And she's talking to Sisko. And I just love this scene because she's explaining to Cisco how they fell in love. Jax is basically saying, I have lived all of these lifetimes. I've been married so much. I was not looking to get into a relationship, but suddenly I'm getting married. She says, this Klingon with a bad attitude walks into my life. I love that. That is such a perfect way of describing just the way that Sometimes someone walks into your life and you're like, oh, I guess there's no going back. (laughs) No, you're like, I didn't mean for this to happen, but it's happening and I'm not sorry about it. She says also in that scene, after all these years, I continue to lead with my heart. Oh, I love that line. I love it so much. It just totally sums up Jadzia and Worf. Worf very much leads with his heart. (laughs) Yeah. So Sorella, who finally invited Jadzia into the House of Martok, Sorella she... Deville. Sorella <laughs> Deville. <laughs> yeah, she's a fierce Klingon, but mm-hmm. she finally accepts Judzia in and they have this beautiful marriage ceremony where they talk about the Klingon hearts and how one Klingon heart was lonely when it was looking for its mate. And so the gods created another Klingon heart and they fought at first, but then they were like, no, let's bond together. And they killed the gods. <laughs> <laughs> This is how strong the Klingon heart is. And so that's something I really 
love that they talk about that because I think there's a stereotype that Klingons have a sort of the stiff upper lip, don't talk about their feelings, but that's not true for most Klingons, at least not for Worf. He very much carries his emotions on his sleeve. And Jadzia, to an extent, does as well. And so it's really lovely to see these two Klingon hearts get together. (laughs) I love them so much. And the fact in this episode that they do make a compromise. They're both stubborn and (laughs) set in their ways. And so it can be hard sometimes for them to communicate in a way that's productive and not just telling each other what they think the other person should do. But I do love that they're able to put aside their sort of bitterness about certain situations and realizing like what's really important is that we love each other and that we want to get married. The ceremony is certainly something Worf's been dreaming about forever. And so he does want it to be perfect. But I just love that they got over that and they got over the hump and didn't just call it off and say, we're done. I think once they had called off the wedding, both of them knew it was the wrong choice. I love that they do a gender reversal about Worf planning the wedding because traditionally it's the female who goes nuts over the arrangements. Worf is the epitome of power and strength and masculinity to an extent. Mm -hmm. The fact that he's losing his mind over all these very small wedding details, especially Mm -hmm. about what color Dax's shoes are, it helps with the idea that it doesn't matter at all who's crazy planning the wedding. You know, that's just a personality type, not a gender type. I love the episode Change of Heart, which we also watched for this podcast. This episode signifies a huge shift for Worf. We talked about earlier that O'Brien is career obsessed. Okay, though, he's nothing compared to Worf. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Worf is so career driven. He's the first Klingon in Starfleet. He has been ranking up like crazy <laughs> through TNG and DS9. And in this episode, he's forced to choose between saving Dax's life, the life of his wife, and possibly having his own command. And so. They are, I can't remember the details of why they're on. Oh, yeah, I totally do. Worf and Dax are sent out together in a shuttle because they have to get information from a Cardassian spy who's going to give them a lot of information that could save the lives of millions of people. And they have to cross this crazy jungle to meet at the rendezvous point. And on the way there, Dax is really injured. She's bleeding out. Um, and Worf is trying to treat her, but ultimately they're not getting where they need to go fast enough. And so Worf has to leave her behind. But When he does, she is not in good shape. She, I think, knows that she might not survive when Worf leaves, but she's all positive the entire time. She's trying to make jokes, trying to keep Worf happy and able to continue this mission. But Worf has a great, great scene where he's standing in the clearing and he's trying to decide what to do. And you just see him turn around. Yeah, he throws his knife at the tree because you know he's mad. He's frustrated that his heart is getting in the way of his career, but he also knows that there's no other option. He's not going to leave Jadzia there. There's no way. Well, and then at the end of the episode, when he talks to Cisco, that's what he said. He references the marriage ceremony we just talked about because he never understood that beating of the heart would be so powerful. I love that scene. As Cisco says to Worf after basically punishing him, and it will go down on your permanent record. <laughs> so, you know, it's going on Worf's record. And then Cisco says, You probably never will have a ship of your own. And Worf's like, All right, you know. Cisco says to him before he leaves, As a man who once had a wife, if Jennifer had been laying in that clearing, I wouldn't have left her there either. Mm. So 
that's so important that line because Cisco and something I admire about him is that he is very stern and he will definitely reprimand you if you break protocol and he will do his duty there's not a lot that can stand in the way of that but also he empathizes with his crewmates and with his subordinates and I think that is what makes him such a good captain is the fact that he still understands why Worf does it and tells him he would do the same and that really shows just how important Jennifer was to Cisco and how important Dax is to Worf because this like you said it's Worf's everything is his career but not anymore they've been married for two months so not even very long when you love someone you know and there's nothing like it the scene at the very end of this episode where Judzia and Worf are chatting when she's recovering, he tells her that, yes, I went back for you. No, I did not get the spies information, all of that. And she's so startled and shocked that Worf did this. She's like, I'm so sorry that this happened. It feels like it's my fault. Worf is saying that Judzia comes before everything and that he does not regret his decision one bit. I just love to see that side of Worf. When he makes his mind up, there is no changing it. And this comes also with the people he loves. It's just phenomenal to see his devotion to her. I just think they're one of the most incredible couples. Yeah, I totally agree. I think of the scene where they got together is on par for me when Harry and Jenny get together in Harry Potter. And coming up soon, there's another amazing scene where two characters get together. But those are just some of my favorite moments is when two characters that you've been rooting for for so long finally yeah. get together. And in this case, with Worf and Dax, it's perpetually rewarding because yeah. they will have some kind of conflict. One of them will do something super heroic for the other <laughs> one. And oh, I just love them so much. Rihanna just made a bunch of memes. And one of her memes she made was saying that the characters Worf and Dax, they're the straight couple, but they're cool. Like, yeah. I promise they're cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because they are cool. They're like the coolest couple. And one more thing I do want to say about the two of them that I love in the beginning of Change of Heart is just how domestic their life seems now that they're living together in the same quarters. There's this really cute scene where they have to go and get ready for this mission, but Dax is still cuddled in bed and she's putting a pillow over her face and a blanket over her face. And Worf is like, Jodzia, come on. And he like rips the blanket off of her and she's like, no. And it's just <laughs> most domestic moment that's definitely happened to me oh me too (laughs) away from us by our partner and so it's just a really lovely moment that everyone can relate to Yes, I love it. I also love just kind of jumping back a little bit to You Were Cordially Invited. We didn't talk much about Worf and his side of that episode with the bachelor party. I mean, O'Brien and Bashir are going into it thinking it's going to be a real party. (laughs) Rager. (laughs) Yeah, they're expecting booze and babes and... Klingon all chanting all night. Yeah. yeah, like Klingon songs. And there are Klingon songs, but there's also Dangling in the Dungeons, <laughs> which is my favorite Magic Treehouse book, by the way. <laughs> Dangling in the Dungeons at Daybreak, you know, yeah. <laughs> a classic. Oh, man. And that warrior song they sing is one of my favorite ones. Doi Gaelis Do. Oh, not that one. Oh, wait, no. Which one do they sing? <laughs> Yeah, <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> 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 
so da, 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 da. There's yeah. such good harmonies there yeah anyway yeah i know Worf. he takes the high harmony and then yeah. i saw he was like glancing with martok and then they were changing harmonies i was like okay michael doran get after it yeah right so good yeah so this bachelor party not at all what they expected they did not expect blood pain sacrifice anguish or death but they got no. all of them <laughs> And they even got to carry sticks to beat the couple oh with my God. after and the ceremony. And Julian was so ready. He's like, now? Can I beat them now? Because <laughs> he's just so <laughs> mad at Worf. I do love, though, that Cisco is just rolling with it. He doesn't yeah. complain at all once. He's no. just like, yeah, I'm doing this for a friend. We didn't see Cisco dangle, but I assume he was also <laughs> dangling in the dungeon. So. <laughs> but he was not complaining, which I just got to respect. Yeah, my heart is warmed by seeing them go through this bachelor party together because they're totally willing to do it. And that's something about the DS9 senior officers in general that I'm always surprised by is they're always down to do all of this crazy stuff. I mean, in probably 30 minutes, we're going to talk about how they're down to play baseball with Cisco and take me out to the hollow suite. They're down to do this bachelor party with Worf. And they're just so accepting of everybody else's cultures that Mm. they do just roll with the punches because they care about the people around them. It's very lovely to see how much acceptance they have and how much they can do for each other. A hundred percent. They fasted for four days. They really did. Yeah. Speaking of characters doing something for one another. And characters that fast unintentionally for each other. (laughs) We are going to next talk about the episode The Ascent which featured two of the most unlikely pairings you would think to actually have a love and affection episode about, Quark and Odo. Mm-hmm. Lovers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> can we start out just by saying how hilarious it is that Odo is reading a smutty novel while they're aboard the shuttlecraft? What? I, what's more hilarious is he says it's for work. <laughs> <laughs> He's, I'm trying to figure out why people commit crimes of passion i'm like no you're not you're just oh no (laughs) yeah you have feelings for kira bubbling up and he doesn't know how to deal with them so he's reading these books and isn't he human yeah he's human in this episode this Mm -hmm. is this human era of odo and so i think yeah he doesn't know how to deal with his hormones totally agree but i just think it's hilarious that Quark reads a whole passage of this novel it cracks me up because odo lets him he's like ugh all right out loud it's just so funny it's similar ashlyn's talking about the meme i made the other day i also made one for quark and odo that's called enemies to lovers because this is sort of how this episode feels to me classic quark and odo have this banter that i think starts out very hostile i mean there's a lot of hostility from both sides because quark thinks he's always being persecuted for things because he is But also because Quark does a lot of illegal stuff. Odo is always suspecting Quark for something, even if Quark's not involved in whatever shady activity is going on. It's a very adversarial relationship to begin with. But I think as the seasons go on, it is less derogatory and more affectionate as their banter turns more in that direction, which is super interesting to watch the progression because it's kind of subtle, but it does become more loving and more exasperated than actual outright hate. Hatred. And this episode, I think, is the pillar of this relationship and the turn that it takes is because Quark and Odo get stranded on this planet and have to work together to survive, which is a perfect Star Trek plot. Happens all the time. And I love <laughs> to see it when it's two characters who need to grow together. <laughs> 
Yes, I totally agree. Everything you said, amen. Bless up here. We can just shut it down. I agree. Um, (laughs) I was thinking about their relationship in general, and it had me wondering about how close the relationship is between hatred and love. Because I have had a couple friendships in my life that start out where I'm so annoyed by them and I'm frustrated by them all the time, just so annoyed. But they've turned out to be one of my best friends and closest Mm -hmm. friends in my life. And it's just something weird that happens sometimes where you get to see someone's flaws right away. And maybe you don't like them because they're close to your own flaws or because they're just irritating to you. But because all of the annoyances are out there, you can get used to them faster as opposed to meeting someone you like right away. And then after a couple months, you're like, oh, (laughs) there's some weird parts I didn't like about them. (laughs) I mean, if anything, going from hatred to friendship is a faster way to get to know somebody. I'm thinking about there's a great line from Hunter Hunter, an anime where Gon Mm -hmm. says, in order to really know someone, you have to know what they hate. It's and true. in this case, Quark hates Odo. So it makes me think Quark loves Odo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But I thought this episode was really a transition for them to becoming old friends. Mm-hmm. And especially when they're lying together, having been saved because of Quark, he climbed the mountain at, at the very end because Odo breaks his leg. Mm-hmm. Quark carries the transmitter or transceiver or whatever giant antenna he has. Yeah. <laughs> he carries it all the way to the top of the mountain. And I really thought that he wouldn't be able to do it. I didn't quite remember the ending of this episode. And so I thought maybe they were already high enough that they could send out a message, but they just hadn't checked or something. But no, Quark did it. He climbed the mountain all the way to the top. So that was really impressive to me. And I think Odo was also really impressed by it. And I love the scene where they're lying together in the hospital wing. the hospital wing in yeah in the yeah. infirmary in sick bay they're laughing together at each other even though they're making fun of each other you can just tell something is different in this relationship now and i love it and i love that they had to go through this crazy mountain in order to get there yeah i mean ashlyn and i are mountain climbers we climb a lot Ooh. of the 14ers in colorado mountains above fourteen thousand feet yeah yeah. Good. Thank you. In case yeah. you don't know, they're mostly in Colorado, but there's also some in California and Alaska, maybe mm-hmm. Montana as well. Yeah. So I don't know. Right on the Rocky Mountain range. So we've climbed quite a few of those and we've done a few together, just the two of us. And I think about the strength that you need and the endurance to climb a mountain like that, the mental endurance as well, not just the physical that makes me admire Quark and Odo a lot more because halfway through this episode when Odo breaks his leg, Quark drags Odo on this makeshift stretcher they made for probably a good chunk of the mountain. And it is incredible to see. I mean, it's, I may not be able to carry your burden, but I can carry you moment, you know? It's very <laughs> Lord of the Rings. It I, is. I loved to see that it was Quark doing this because Odo is a lot bigger than him, a lot taller. He's already putting his full weight into carrying Odo plus having to continue to climb this mountain. It's really, really cool to see. And the fact that when Quark finally, he pretty much gives up, he lays down, he's like, I can't do it. And like, I've been there on 14ers. I totally understand. Mm -hmm. But it's also they're starving and freezing and it's a horrible situation. So it's even worse. 
Yeah, they didn't set out at a brisk 4 a.m. backpacks filled with water and no. cliff bars. They no. set out with nothing except one coat that they could share between each other and this crazy transmitter and a little bit of rations. And that's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And so that is just very daunting in and of itself. And so Quark just gives up and Odo starts crawling. He cannot stand up and walk. But he crawls forward on the path. And this is what I think sparks Quark back into action. Is he sees, okay, if Odo is willing to crawl up this mountain to save us, then I can get up and walk the rest of the way. And I think that the way that in which they inspire each other in this episode is really, really special. And I also want to say that in the beginning, Quark is kind of hogging the jacket. But in the very next scene, you see they switched. And it was Quark's idea to switch off and on with the coat. And so I think that he probably saw how much Odo was shivering and how miserably he looked. And it really does make me question how adversarial their relationship really was. Because if they truly hated each other, it would have been more like pulling teeth for them to get through this. I'm just thinking, what if this episode, instead of Quark and Odo, was Golducott and Cisco? I mean, I would just- They stranded together in an episode and it does not go well. Oh (laughs) God, yeah, I forgot. Oh yeah. Yeah, we talked about that episode. Yeah, I just, this is so special. I love this episode. I also love the B-plot, which is Jake and Nog are moving in together. It's the first time Nog is living with somebody else that's not like the cadet quarters. And it's really funny to see how much of a neat freak Nog is and how messy Jake is. Mm -hmm. And I love the moment where Rom and Cisco come together and have a little dad lunch. And they talk about their sons. And they both come to realize that even though they're so different, they have a lot to learn from each other because Cisco wishes that Jake had a little more self-discipline like Nog does. And Rom wishes that Nog could have a little more fun. I feel like it's rare that we see two dads talking about their sons in this way. And I love to see it. It's so sweet. And I love that they eventually push through and are able to start living together because they have so many issues, but they're able to resolve them after just taking a little break. Yeah, absolutely. And this reminds me again how good Star Trek is at making it feel relatable because I've lived with some of my best friends before and it's hard. It's a hard transition because being a best friend with someone doesn't include having to figure out who does the dishes and who's going to sweep or mop or all of those things. And so adding that into the mix can sometimes be very damaging to friends. And there's a lot of jokes out there of like, don't ever live with your best friend because they may not be your best friend at the end of it. But I think those who really are close will put in the effort. And that's what Jake and Nog end up doing. It is sort of tough in the middle, but they get to bond through this and learn more about each other because that's really how you become even deeper friends is by learning even the bad habits you don't like about your friend and still accepting them. Yeah, absolutely. They hadn't thought through how differently they live because for me, now that I've had so many roommates, both good and bad, one of the first things I do when I know I'm going to be living with someone else is ask them, okay, how clean do you like the house? Do you have animals? All the good roommate questions. Like, do you want it? Do you want to party every night? All of these things that are really important (laughs) when having a roommate relationship that transcends friendship. Even if you're best friends with somebody, if you don't agree on some of those very basic things, it's not going to go well. Just like it didn't go well (laughs) for them. Another relationship that we briefly talked about in the beginning is Rom and Lita. 
and oh my god i love these two i think that they're just the sweetest things rom is truly a national treasure and i'm very glad that he found love and that he found someone as amazing as lita because i remember early on she was kind of going out with bashir it was super weird it didn't work because bashir was in love with garrick <laughs> but anyway in the episode ferengi love songs rom and lita are deciding to get married and O'Brien and Dax are having a conversation with Rom that sort of eggs him on. I don't think they meant to because they didn't realize how strongly Rom would take their words. They are sort of like, oh, good thing you're not a traditional Ferengi or she'd have to go naked to the wedding and she would have to give up all her property. And it really starts to make Rom think, why am I not more of a traditional Ferengi? Should I be implementing these changes for my new wife? And he does try to. He gives her like this crazy, it's kind of like a prenup almost, you know, of like, you yeah. have to give away all your assets when you marry me and pretty much strips her of her rights. And of course, Lita's like, no effing way am I doing that. Are you kidding me? She's already worked so hard with her wages at the Dabo tables and she's been working her butt off for years. She's not going to give up all her savings just to get married, no matter how much you love someone. I no, no, I don't think anyone what? would do that. No. <laughs> Completely what? unreasonable request. But I think it comes from an insecurity of Rom's that he's not Ferengi enough. And it's hard to be sort of the quote unquote black sheep of a society that has very similar ideals. And when you don't share those ideals, it can be hard to come to terms with that. I think everyone before their wedding gets kind of crazy emotionally because it's a big decision that you're making and you're making it on your own. Mm -hmm. And so if there's any questions at all, you have to make sure you know the answers to those questions. Absolutely. And so that's exactly what Ram is doing is he's exploring, I'm not a real man because of these thoughts I'm having. And I'm glad that they were able to work it out. I also think that the term marriage is a loaded one because there are so many expectations in human culture and all over the world. Everybody has traditions that is just expected. The reason that Lita forgives him and decides to go through the marriage is because Rom gives away all of his latinum. Literally every single bar of latinum he owns, he donates to the Bajoran War Orphans Foundation. And apparently Kira like actually kissed him when he did. He says, we have nothing but our love. And she's like, that's all we need. Plus my salary from Quarks. <laughs> you know Quark smacked him. <laughs> you know he did. I mean, even Moogie would be like, Rob, <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> Totally. <laughs> now let's talk about Call to Arms, which is the episode where they get married. Well, I'm annoyed at Quark through the marriage ceremony because he's like, oh, the bride's not even naked. But you know what, yeah. Quark, you know what you can do. I love the speech that Rom gives at the end because they're in the middle of a war and they're evacuating the station. And it's dangerous for Lita to stay aboard because she's Bajoran. Okay, so Rom says, you see that, Nog? We've barely finished saying our vows and we're already having our first fight. We're really married. You've got to go, Lita. The problems of two newlyweds are but a small thread in the tapestry of galactic events. You might not understand that today or even tomorrow, but someday you will. So get on that shuttle and don't look back. Nog, take your moogie to the docking ring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a sweetheart. I mean, he's got a point. This is not the time to be thinking about marriage and 
staying together. This is the time to think about war and what is most important is staying alive. You know, I mean, of course, it's amazing that they got married, but it is kind of sad that it has to be this hurried ceremony that Cisco performs and then goes immediately back to mining the wormhole, you know? Yeah, it's a very intense sequence of events. That's got to be a hard time to get married, you know? I mean, that makes me think sort of sad for them that they weren't able to have this bigger ceremony but I also don't think that they really needed much more than just what they had because they just wanted to be married when it came down to it it reminds me of people who get married during wartime because they're afraid they're gonna die Mm -hmm. and I think this was definitely spurred this marriage to happen faster we've talked about Harry Potter like almost too much in this podcast but it makes me (laughs) think I mean this is what Molly and Arthur Weasley did Mm -hmm. is they were scared they were going to die, James so they got Lily. married. Yeah, yeah, James and Lily were like 20 or 21 mm-hmm. when they got married. That's what Bill and Fleur do also. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's a scene in Call to Arms that cracks me up. It's actually one of my favorite ROM moments. So they're trying to figure out how they're going to mine the wormhole. And they need to figure out what they're going to make their minds out of and how to make it an effective weapon against the Dominion. And... Rom is panicking about the wedding. Like he's talking with O'Brien and Dax and they're trying to figure out a solution. And half the time he's like, I'm not going to have enough closet space. And then the other half, he's like, we can self-replicate the mines. And then he comes up with the solution to the problem and then goes immediately back to, I haven't even asked to transfer quarters yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm constantly amazed by Rom because he's this engineering genius who just has regular concerns like all of us you know he's still very preoccupied by the wedding but he also comes up with the solution get a man who can do both seriously i love rom's transformation because he really goes from a ferengi with not a lot of confidence to someone who really blossoms and is not afraid to show who he really is and i think lita is a huge part of that yeah because once he finally has the gumption to ask her out that's when it all changes for him because he's able to do something scary and once again high risk high reward yeah (laughs) and you get to have a family our youth leader used to say it only takes 10 seconds of bravery so remember that yes ah yes go into this week and remember 10 seconds of bravery can bring you 10 years of happiness and bring you someone like lita (laughs) so go Ah, get her (laughs) and who doesn't want lita Shall we move on to some Odo Kira? Yes, yes. You mean how Odo finally gets it his way? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the next portion of our podcast, we're going to start with the episode His Way, which is the pinnacle moment in Odo and Kira's beginning of their relationship. It has been a journey for them to even get together. I think His Way is in season six seven yeah it's six it's 620 so it's towards the end of the season even yeah yeah so that is a long haul for them not to be able to get together i was just talking about how glad judzia and Worf weren't will they won't they odo and kira definitely were right before they're about to go off to war there's a scene where odo says that he would like to ask kira to lunch but they're both dealing with the war. That's not the time to start jumping into a new relationship, especially when you're someone as tentative as Odo is. And so both of them agree to just remain friends for the time being. Then then they have sort of this vague end date of, oh, maybe when the war calms down or when it's over, we can try this out. But Odo never gains the courage to ask her out. And Kira is 
with Shakar for a while. She's kind of with Vedic Burial. But even when she's single, Odo still does not have the courage to ask her out. And so who does he go to to get this courage? The one and only Vic Fontaine. Yes, I love Vic. This is, I feel like, one of the first, if not the first episode with him. Is it? Yeah, this first episode. What a great introduction because for me, this is the last character I would expect to appear on a show like Deep Space Nine. You're telling me that a singer who's kind of like Sinatra from the 60s is going to be kind of a main cast member in Star Trek Deep Space Nine? Right. What? It doesn't make any sense, but... For some reason, it really works. Can you imagine no. your life without Vic? Can you imagine Deep Space no. Nine without Vic Fontaine? That would feel like there was a piece missing. Like He really becomes a part of the coping mechanism to get through this war and to help people. And I love that about him. I think Vic is one of the first holograms that we see long for a little bit more of a life than just a hologram life. Mm -hmm. We know in Voyager, the doctor eventually gains full freedom where he has his mobile emitter and he can walk around and do whatever he wants. So does Da Vinci in Mm -hmm. Lower Decks. Um You know, just a couple people here and there. Yeah. 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 for way more than just... Oh, no. (laughs) Badgie wants to take life. Yeah. But Vic, he's not someone who wants to necessarily leave the Hollow Suite. He eventually is running 24-7. So he's able to basically function with all these other people on the station. And he kind of is almost like another shop on the promenade. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, should we go to Quark's and then stop by Vic's? <laughs> it's right. like an, an entertainment bar within an entertainment bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> And he just becomes a real staple of the station. And I love this introduction to him because to take a character like Odo, who has no confidence. I mean, we just talked about Rom. They're kind of two peas in a pod, except Mm -hmm. that Odo has a lot bigger of an ego. And he's all about rules. And I'm the security officer. (laughs) (laughs) I love what Vic does with Odo by telling him to try to play the piano with some confidence and dress up, you know, feel good about yourself get excited about life and once Odo's able to do that that's when his shell starts to crack a little bit and he's able to be more authentic with Kira I love this episode yeah I think that something so special about Vic that I wish more people in life were like this is that he's not focusing on building up Odo just so he can have a relationship he just wants to build Odo up to show him how cool he is you know he is singing his praises and literally because <laughs> he's a singer Vic is one who really understands people and their insecurities and he understands what they need in order to overcome them. And I think that's because he takes the time to listen and he takes the time to observe. I mean, this first scene where we see Vic, Julian introduces him to all of his friends and immediately Vic knows that Worf and Dax are married and he can sense the awkward tension between Kira and Odo. And he knows that O'Brien is missing Keiko. He has this incredible foresight into people and he can read a room like no one else. And he knows exactly where people are at in their lives and sort of what guidance they need to help themselves. Really feels like for the first time, Odo is being seen for who he is and not judged by it. Because I think even Kira, without meaning to, will sometimes judge him for being a certain way. And 
absolutely everyone else judges him for being the security officer or for being a changeling or for being a human when he was. He's always faced with people wanting different things from him. For once in his life, Vic doesn't want anything from him except for him to improve himself. I I think that that takes the pressure off of having to be a certain way because Vic is just like, hey, Pally, calm down. Let's just hang out, play the (laughs) piano together and sing. Like that sounds like so much fun and something that's so low pressure. Even when Odo starts to clam up when he's around even the holographic women, Vic can see that. He's really good at reading people. And for a hologram, like that's really impressive. I don't know. I just love the heck out of Vic. I think he's such an amazing character and so helpful for Odo in this episode. And I love what you said about how he teaches Odo to be more relaxed and just to be more of himself and become comfortable with himself because that is also the work that everyone needs to do in order to enter a relationship for the first time because it's hard when you've never dated before or if it's been a long time since you've been dating to jump back into it because you want people to see you as attractive and exciting and someone to pursue. But A lot of the times people can't wrap their head around how to stand out to other people in a romantic way. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard hurdle to get over. The key is becoming comfortable with yourself and becoming someone who is confident in their own skin. Because when someone's confident in themselves, it's a very attractive quality to people. At least to me, when someone exudes this confidence and they know who they are, or at least have some inclination, it's so nice to see because it doesn't feel like they're putting on a show. It feels like they're working every day to be who they are. And that's, I think, what Kira loves so much about Odo is when she gets the glimpses of real Odo behind his security changeling mask. Yeah. Odo is the first one to really trust Vic with his true self because he knows that Vic is not going to walk around on the promenade and say, Odo's good at piano. Hey, guys, come (laughs) look at Odo, five o'clock on Saturday. You know, he's not going to tell anyone about how vulnerable Odo was when he was on the hollow suite. And so I think it's a safe space for Odo to be where he doesn't have to perform exactly like you're saying, except when he's at the piano. (laughs) Took the words out of my mouth. Well said. I, and I mentioned this before. One of my other favorite scenes of two couples getting together is when Odo and Kira finally kiss on the promenade. So first of all, they've had this disastrous first date where Vic basically tricked Kira and Odo into thinking that it was a fake date and that Odo was with a hologram. But no, Odo was really with Kira. Yeah, not one and of Vic's shining moments. That was not something that he should have done. <laughs> No, that's not great. (laughs) But it really opened up to Kira everything that she needed to know about Odo because he was being so vulnerable in that day and so open with himself and Mm -hmm. so determined to be with Kira. It really opened her eyes. And so I love the scene just five minutes after their date. But it's been a couple days, I think, in space time. (laughs) (laughs) But Kira is running up to Dax and she's like, have you ever had a moment of pure clarity? And Dax is like, yeah, like two in like seven lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And Kira's like, what? (laughs) Because I'm having one right now. And Dax is like, oh, like this is crazy. You know, (laughs) you need to act on it. And then Kira gets another one. And Dax again is like, oh, that's nuts. You really need to do whatever you're doing because this is not normal. This feeling of total clarity is rare. So go after it. Kira goes up to Odo. They're like play fighting, kind of yelling at each other and they get together. And 
Mm, it's just so great. I love this writing so much. Mm-hmm. The passion that's so prevalent in this scene. I love again that it's the woman being the aggressor because of course Kira would be the one. Makes sense. She's just very much like Dax in this way. Kira is pretty much just like, you want to go to dinner with me or what? <laughs> you know, she's like mad about it. She's like, hey, I want to date you. And then Oda's like, listen, like we should kiss. And then she's like, so why don't we? And then they do. Also for the fact that they're doing this in front of everyone in the middle of the promenade is so important for Odo because he's such a private dude. He is not into public displays of affection as far as I can tell. Does not seem like his vibe, but he will do it for Kira and he doesn't care because of the stuff Vic taught him, but also because he has more confidence in himself. And when you know somebody likes you back, ooh, that's just the greatest. Because then you're like, (laughs) I feel secure. I can stop being doubtful about my position with this person and can just make out. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. (laughs) I think we should also talk about It's Only a Paper Moon because that's another Vic-heavy episode that honestly was really touching to me watching it for this podcast. This, of course, is the episode after Nog has lost his leg. And it's the first two, two after Nog has lost his leg. He is returning to Deep Space Nine for the first time after being in the hospital and the rehabilitation center. We see that it is very hard for him to come back to DS9 and he's not on duty. He's on full leave for a while, medical leave. And he's having such trouble integrating back into normal life. He finds home and a sense of normality with Vic Fontaine in Vic's crazy Las Vegas life. Talk about one of the top 10 episodes of Deep Space Nine. This one always sticks out in my mind. First of all, the total confidence that Vic has in Nog from the very beginning is so essential because Nog told Vic that ever since he's been in the rehabilitation center, he's pretty much been told that his pain is in his head, that his leg shouldn't be hurting. He's walking with a cane still, even though he doesn't need to. 24th century medicine has like full leg reattachment and everything. I think that it's kind of backwards the way that the doctors had treated him and the way that a lot of the Deep Space Nine crew was treating him. They clearly are not recognizing the signs of PTSD. It's just a little dicey the way that they're all treating Nog just because the pain's in his head, it isn't real, which is just not the case. And something that I find so important about this episode is that through living in the hollow suite with Vic, Vic teaches him that this life is as real to me as your life is to you. Nog's like, I can just program you to have more money <laughs> for the hollow suite. And Vic is like, no, thanks. I'll, I'll figure it out myself. And he's like, why? You know, this is not real. And Vic says, well, it's real to me. And I think that that is the instance when Nog can realize, oh, just because people are telling me my pains in my head doesn't make it not real because it is real to him. And the trauma he went to is went through is real. I think that the fact that Vic is immediately like, I believe you. I believe that you're in pain. I believe that you need to walk with a cane and completely accepts him for that. Again, showing how much empathy Vic has and the ability to just sit and listen and meet people where they're at. One of my favorite phrases we always use for Star Trek characters. I just love a good Nog support squad because (laughs) I feel like his friends and family don't know what to do for him. And even Esri questions after a while whether he should remain in the holodeck until she sees how well he's doing and how uh, less irritable and more at home he is. And I think it's exactly the same reason 
that Odo felt so comfortable in the hollow suite is because it's such low stakes. Nog is helping Vic create a new casino and everything. And he's working on his books and on his finances. What I'll just say is that I think it's really smart the way that Vic gently nudges Nog. He doesn't push him, but he nudges him to be like, oh, I'm terrible at finances. Oh, can you help me? I think that was just a ploy because Vic knows Ferengis. He knows that they're very financially savvy and he knows that Nog probably is too. And so that's his way to give him a project, something to work on that he can feel like he's succeeding in because I think maybe a lot of his life feels right now like failures because he doesn't like when people call him a hero. He doesn't like talking about his experience losing his leg. Obviously, it's horrible what happened to him. And I don't know. I just am once again so grateful that Vic was here because I don't know who else could have helped Nog out of this really dark moment in his life. I think that probably there was someone on the the Alamo Hollow Suite program <laughs> that could have helped Nog. I bet Bashir programmed a really nice cowboy. <laughs> you know, I mean, if one Hollow Suite program doesn't work, just try another. <laughs> um, in, in all seriousness, I totally agree. I think that not only was Vic giving him a project to do, but he was helping Vic. And it forced Nog to do something that was outside of himself and his own needs and desires because he just volunteers this. He's like, oh, well, then I'll be your accountant. Great. That's extremely beneficial. I was actually, which is just shocking to me because my whole life I've spent not liking Troy at all. But I was actually thinking in this episode, Troy does a better job of integrating people back into their lives than Esri does in this episode and better than the whole DS9 cast right now because I was actually thinking of hero worship and our discussion that we had in the last episode about the next generation love and affection characters because in that episode a 12 year old is trying to rebuild his life after losing his whole ship and family and everyone that he ever knows (laughs) and it's very hard and to cope with it he dresses up like data so it was very similar to me in this episode because nog is dealing with losing his leg Mm -hmm. also losing his innocence Mm -hmm. and that's a lot to lose and it's a lot to cope with and no one else really understands how he's feeling and so instead of dressing up like data his friend android he dresses (laughs) up like vic his friend hologram yeah (laughs) (laughs) they're wearing tuxedos together they're both talking in the same American slang of the 60s. And I thought that it was very healthy, everything that Nog was doing. Esri and Bashir talk so much in this episode about how the body has a natural instinct to survive. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you will seek out therapy in your own form to Mm -hmm. heal yourself, which I think is true. But I still think that Esri maybe should have had some other guiding forces to help him. Yes. But Anyway, that's for our therapy and trauma episode. (laughs) (laughs) I think another really important scene in this one is when Jake comes to visit. And really, when everyone comes to visit, it really shows how Nog is doing. Because the minute he sees Jake and his girlfriend, Nog just shuts down Mm -hmm. and becomes angry and irritable and ends up throwing the table at Jake. Yeah. um, Just because... Yeah, punching him, his best friend, because he's they're calling him a hero and that they're so proud of him and he's going to be the first captain, first Ferengi captain ever. Nog cannot deal with the pressure and cracks under it. 
he makes such a big mistake that Vic berates him for it and he throws him out of the performance venue. (laughs) Yeah, the club. He's like, get out of here. (laughs) You can't be punched by customers, which is true. Like that's unacceptable behavior for Nog. Mm -hmm. And so I think the fact that he's able to make such a mistake is really good because I'm wondering if he had not been able to be in the hollow suite, what would he have done in real life? Like would he have destroyed Quark's bar? Mm -hmm. Would he have phasered someone? He was in such a panic in the situation that he had a fight or flight response and boy did he choose to fight (laughs) yes definitely i think a key moment in this episode too is when vic rips off the band-aid after esri says maybe it's time for nog to come home and return to reality vic pretty takes that to heart and is like okay kiddo get out of here and he shuts off the holodeck program because he knows that It's for Nog's own good. I wasn't sure if this was the right decision at first because Nog is desperate to try to get back in, but only Vic can allow people to activate his program again if he wants to, which is great. I'm glad he has consent. (laughs) No other holograms do, so that was nice. But I think that it's important the talk they had because Vic said that he was so grateful to Nog because in the first time of his holographic life, he was able to actually do just day-to-day stuff. He could sleep in his bed. He could hang out with his friends because usually he's just turned on so he can sing a couple songs and then he's turned off again. Nog gave him the chance at a real life and he said that he's willing to sacrifice his day-to-day life for Nog to return to the real world and start living his life. That is a beautiful moment. I think it really puts in perspective for Nog what Vic was sacrificing to kick him out, even though it might have seemed harsh at the time. He says to him, eventually you'll seem as hollow as me if you stay here, essentially. And it was such an important moment for him. And I'm just very happy that Deep Space Nine took the route of realistic expectations of trauma where people ask him after he comes back out, Rom is like, how are you? Are you okay? And Nog says, no, but I will be. And that is just really great. And I think it's because of the love that Vic showed to him and how the Nog gives Vic 26 hours of access to just his life and he gives him a life as a thank you. And it's just a very special moment. Yeah, I love it. And Ram and Lita's brief appearances in this episode kind of reminded me of uh, I can't remember what the episode's called, but the one where Molly vanishes into the cave, and I think it's Time's Orphan. Yeah. In that episode, Keiko and O'Brien have to deal with being parents to a daughter they no longer recognize. And that's kind of the same thing that Rom and Lita are going through in this episode, because yeah. Nog is not his happy-go-lucky self. He's moody and depressed and ridden with anxiety and fear, and they're doing their best to help him and meet him where he's at, like we always say. Yeah. But in this case, it was that not what he needed. He didn't yeah. need parents. He needed a friend. Mm-hmm. And I'm, yeah, I'm just so grateful for Vic. And this is a particularly cathartic episode for me, I think, because I also, given the choice, would want to live in a holodeck right now and let the pandemic pass me by yeah. <laughs> if I could. <laughs> and so it was nice to hear Vic and Nog's talk at the end and Nog's just saying, I'm scared, okay? That's why I don't want to go back into the world because it's scary to have to get up and face my problems day after day after day. This is what Vic reminds him. It's the only life you've got, so you've got to do it. If you want to find happiness, you've got to fight for it, and that's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And Aaron Eisenberg's activeness Mm -hmm. is 
truly unparalleled. It's some of the best acting I've seen in Deep Space Nine, which is saying something because we have people like Brooks and Visitor. You know, there's so many incredible actors in this show. Just incredible to see him in this episode, just completely stripped bare. And I think, yeah, it's just, it's incredible. I just wanted to say that. Well, speaking of PTSD and trauma and wartime emotions, let's talk about the sound of her voice. Gotcha. So the sound of her voice is a really interesting episode because it all happens on the Defiant. I mean, it's kind of a normal like TOS TNG plot, I was thinking, where they're on a ship, they hear a distress call and they go and try to save the person in distress. And in this case, it's six days out of the way at warp nine. So this is really far. This is a good good journey away. Mm -hmm. So I was really surprised that Cisco decided to take this trip for one woman who crashed. Yeah. Didn't even know it's didn't even hesitate. Yeah. He kind of like looked around the the bridge and was like, all right, set course to that planet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And of course there's no other ships in the sector because they had been out charting the beta quadrant, I believe. And so they were just far enough out that they weren't, No one else was around. But this episode is really fascinating because we get to understand about a woman's life who we never actually meet and never actually see in person. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see her skeleton (laughs) corpse. Um, Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) The thing I like so much about this episode is the fact that we get to get inside the psyche of all of our favorite characters through the way they talk to this stranger Because I think sometimes we can be more candid with strangers than we can be with our friends. And this is Mm -hmm. definitely the case with O'Brien. He is feeling very isolated right now, but he doesn't feel like he can go to his friends because he doesn't want to be a burden. He doesn't want to pile on. And as someone who constantly doesn't want to be a burden, I completely understand this. This is a really tough position to be in because you're struggling, but you don't know how to reach out to people without seeming like you're sort of complaining because everyone's going through a war. Everyone's seen a lot of action at this point. I mean, Bashir is a completely different person by the time this episode rolls around. Everyone's been really affected by the war. And I just, I love the fact that she is able to help them all understand each other a little bit better Because she has these practically therapy sessions with O'Brien and Bashir really gets a talking to because he's so focused on his work that he's not listening to her. And she does this whole scene where she pretends to get eaten by this monster. It's kind of hilarious. That's the only way it'll catch his attention. And I love that she calls him out for that and says, I'm also your patient. I'm also a part of your work. You need to be listening to me and you need to be more attentive to the people around you. Because I think Bashir had started to check out. And O'Brien says this too, that he was scared to get close to people because he's scared of losing them. Frankly, it just is such a good episode of growth for everyone. Because even though they weren't able to save her, she's actually been dead for all these years. And the signal years. for three yeah. years. And the signal has just carried through a weird like time void. <laughs> I don't really get it. And even O'Brien, when he was saying it, just shrugged. So like he doesn't even know the techno babble in this. I thought that even when they're talking at her funeral, they are all saying the lessons they learned. Either like Cisco learned how to be a better partner to Cassidy. And O'Brien learns how to open up to his friends and 
Bashir learns that he needs to listen to his friends more. And they all were able to gain such knowledge from her because she was just kind and open and embracing people. And I think that sometimes we just need someone like that to sort of reset ourselves. If we're going through these times where you feel like you have to be numb to cope, which I think a lot of us are going through this right now with the trauma of the pandemic that we're going through. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes I can't even get up the energy to have emotions. And so I think that it's important to have someone in your life who can just listen and just understand. You just learn a lot about yourself with those types of people. I totally agree. That was beautifully said. Thank you. (laughs) I was actually thinking about this a lot after I watched this episode because at one point her and O'Brien are talking and he says to her, oh, I can't talk to my wife about this. She doesn't understand. Oh, I can't talk to my friends about this. They don't understand. And he also then goes on to criticize counselors and how ship counselors are annoying because they get in the way Mm -hmm. and then her name is lisa Mm -hmm. and she says to him well o'brien if you can't talk to your wife and you can't talk to your friends you know who you should probably talk to and he's like a ship's counselor counselor. (laughs) yeah Yeah. and so that you know that was a good check-in for me too you know like do i have people around me who i can talk to no matter who it is am i at least able to get my emotions out in this crazy time and she says to cisco too it seems like your crew needs some r and r rest and relaxation and i totally agree yeah they all need um, therapy too so yeah yeah and i love also the speech that o'brien gives at her funeral at the end, he says, we didn't mean to drift apart as friends, but we did. And now we know that it wasn't anyone's fault. It just, it's something that happened. And so we can, in the future, be more conscious and we can try to support each other and lift each other up again. And I think it's really interesting that it took the death of this woman who they were also close to yet never met. And that's, that's what made them remember that oh man friendship is so important we have to keep being honest and genuine with each other otherwise we're not going to be able to function yep exactly there's also a kind of fun and hilarious b plot in this episode pork is helping odo to tell him that he should spoil kira for their one month anniversary but he's doing this under the guise so that he can sell contraband. (laughs) It's a whole ruse from Quark in the beginning. Oh, Odo is completely distracted when he's talking about Kira or when he sees Kira, I'm going to use this to my advantage to, he's like, oh, Odo, you have to get him, get her a gift. Odo, you have to book time in the hollow suite. But the thing is, is that Quark knows the date of his one month anniversary. He knows all of this stuff about Odo because as he said in the episode, he has been helping Odo get Kira for years. Quark has been listening to Odo moan about his, like bemoan his struggles about not getting with Kira and how much he loves her and how much he wants to be with her. And Quark has gently nudged him in these directions to try to help them get together. He's been playing matchmaker for years and also being a good friend to Odo for years because he's listening through all this. Maybe he doesn't want to all the time. He doesn't. He wants to run his bar and not hear about his chief of security's love life. But he does because I think part of him is genuinely interested to see how this will play out. He's like, I wonder if Kira and Odo will ever get together. Like those crazy kids need to get their heads Mm -hmm. out of the sand. It's a really cool scene because he's talking with 
Jake in the cargo bay because they switched up the dates. So now he isn't going to be able to make this illegal trade. Mm-hmm. And Odo, of course, is there as a container <laughs> because he's yes. always surveilling Quark. And he hears this entire conversation of how Quark is just frustrated that Odo will not get off his back, even though Quark has listened tirelessly to him about his love life. A part of me is like, does Quark know that Odo's in the room and he's hamming it up? But I don't think so. Mm. A part of me wonders just because Quark is sort of a manipulative Slytherin at heart, (laughs) but he also does have a very kind heart when it comes to people he cares about. And so I truly do think that he was just fed up. I just want to do this illegal trade and I want Odo to cut me some slack for once in my life. And Odo does. Yeah. I just struggle with a lot of Odo's morality though, because he's still letting an illegal thing happen. Yeah. Um, which uh, but he's I also don't know, like, like kind of illegally surveilling Quark. So it's this like No, yeah, I just struggle with a lot of Odo's um like policeman methods I just don't agree with because okay so because Quark listened to him and he was such a good friend he lets him get away with this so does that mean if Morn listens to Odo too (laughs) for six years Morn can commit a a horrible crime (laughs) it's fine because they're pals the precedent that Odo is is setting is not good absolutely (laughs) I mean anyway yeah I I think it's really sweet and I was wondering that too because Quark always seems to have one up on Odo and Mm -hmm. then Odo has one up on him so I wasn't sure if Quark knew he was there or not but I agree with you I don't think he did know all right are we ready to talk about or should we end with take me out follow suite yeah, let's end with it. Cassidy. Yeah. Okay, so one couple that we haven't talked much about yet is Cisco and Cassidy Yates. Their relationship is very interesting because it starts out very loving and sweet, and then it turns out Cassidy was dealing with the Maquis, I think. She was yeah. in, they went through a rough patch there, obviously. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Like pursue her and penalize her so anyway <laughs> there you know they've had their ups and downs but once they do start to have a really solid foundation they decide together that they want to get married i don't know do you want to talk about this or because <laughs> <laughs> like, i don't <laughs> yeah so uh poor cisco because he did not ask to be the emissary no ah uh, it this was something that just happened to him and I think about really devout religious people like monks or nuns who will deprive themselves of things because it's all about serving God. Mm-hmm. And Cisco did not want to be a monk, but that's no. kind of what the prophets want him to be is like unmarried and at their beck and call mm-hmm. to do whatever they want him to do. And so I just really feel bad for him because when the prophets tell him that he well, not just the prophet, specifically the image of his mother, Sarah, tells him that if you marry Cassidy, your life will be filled with sorrow. <laughs> just <laughs> is- thing they hear. You don't want to hear yeah. that right before you're out to get married. That's no, not, it should be one of the happiest times of your life. And your mom is saying, mm, particularly, don't do it. Yeah, particularly because he's already dealt with so much sorrow from losing Jennifer And so he's taking a chance on Cassidy and taking a chance on marriage again. And of course, I have no idea what that's like to be 
a widower and then try to jump back into another marriage. This isn't fair to him or to Cassidy. This is something that I find really difficult is Cassidy, of course, is like, I just want to marry you. I love you. Why are these prophets telling us this? And I'm really glad that Cisco told her that this is why he's hesitant. I don't like this plot. I think that it's not fulfilling. I just want to see him happy. And I feel like Cisco never gets happiness. Even in the end, it's still yeah. this very bittersweet moment because Cassidy's pregnant, but he has to go into the prophet ether <laughs> whatever it is i don't really know it's a lot i wish they had more of a happy ending but i am glad that cisco went through with the marriage regardless even kira was very against it she was like mm, you should listen to the prophets you should definitely listen to the prophets and i can see her side absolutely maybe just support your friend in this because he's already going through a lot of questioning of if he should even be going through this marriage so i guess the sorrow that sarah's telling him he's gonna feel is the fact that he's gonna go into the ether alone and leave cat city pregnant and basically like a single mom but to me it's still worth it it's still worth them getting married and having because a together yeah i think Cassidy yeah do the same thing yeah, and I think it's even more important that they got pregnant right away because then she has a, a kid to care for and if Cisco ever comes back, he can help out with the kid. And, you it's know. wild that like, we've had so much Star Trek and still don't know how Cisco's doing. So Oh my it God. Disturbs me. Yeah. I think about it probably once a week. <laughs> I'm like, where's Cisco these days? Is he still in the ether? Probably. That just cuts me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's shift our minds to something a little happier as our last episode let's play ball because i would love to talk about take me out to the hollow suite i desire nothing better <laughs> i'm so excited <laughs> this is such a random plot in season seven of deep space nine this show that is known for its seriousness and war and intense moments and then they play baseball also yes <laughs> the one where they play baseball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's an important reprieve and something that Star Trek has always been really good at is they have inner light and then it's like, haha, we're just running around having fun for the next episode. Original series did this too. They have a funny one and then like Spock's nearly dead in the next one. <laughs> so this is something, Ashlyn, that you had mentioned earlier that the crew goes all into this. I love that there are zero objections about the fact that Cisco didn't ask anyone and just signed them all up for a baseball game against his <laughs> Vulcan Starfleet Academy rival. That is hilarious to me and amazing that all the crew was like, sure, choo-choo, let's jump on board. <laughs> like, what I love too is they're not only half committed to it, they're basically bringing out their flashcards to test each other about how baseball works in all of their free time they're yeah. hanging out at the bar drinking together and they're also like oh what's a fancy dan yeah. you know <laughs> what's a like, bunt yeah even when yeah. They're, they're on ops and talking about bunts and uh like all of these different baseball terms and it is so glorious. I love the fact that they all will go in because they know that they're like, yeah, let's beat these snobby Vulcans. We don't want them to win, especially at Cisco's own game. Come on. Yeah. When we were choosing these episodes, I was at first hesitant to agree to take me out to the Hollow Suite <laughs> because what love and affection is there? And Rihanna was like, are you serious? It's all love and affection. And I was like, huh, okay. And now that I've seen it again, 
Oh boy. I mean, these characters totally commit to playing baseball and are obsessed with it. And part of me thinks it's because Cisco himself has been obsessed with baseball. Like that's a core love of his and the whole crew knows it. It's kind of like when Rhiannon and I were growing up, we were both kind of branded as the Harry Potter freaks, Harry Potter nerds. And I still get messages today from people who are like, oh, I'm at Harry Potter World right now. I'm thinking about you. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) thanks. People I barely know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That I don't talk to. I think that probably happens too with Cisco. Also, because you know, when a partner or a friend of yours is really into something that the more they light up when they talk about it, the passion they have is just so fun to see that you start to love it too. I've really picked up on things that my friends really like just because I want to see them happy and want to share it with them. And so I think this is also sort of the crew's love letter to Cisco to be like, sure, we'll play your favorite game of all time because we know you love it and we support each other here at DS9. We learned throughout the episode that the reason Cisco is so obsessed with winning this game is because of his rivalry with this Vulcan. During their Starfleet Academy days, got into a fight at a bar, a wrestling match that Cisco challenged him to, and then Solok, years after this took place, is still writing papers about that and using that as his thesis for how emotional humans are and how weak they are, basically, yeah. which is dumb. And I think Solok really needs to figure himself out because he's real. got his own problems. Yeah, he's got to do some self work here. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I I thought it was really passive aggressive that he came all the way out to DS9 just to play a baseball game, they you all know, and he, the rules too. Yeah, out of spite. <laughs> just so they could yeah. beat Cisco at his own game. No wonder Cisco is so furious. In this episode, we see him really just one track mind. He is only wanting them to win and kind of forgetting about the fun along the way. And he kicks Rom off the team and the whole team threatens to quit if they don't reinstate mm-hmm. Rom. And Rom, of course, being the peacekeeper that he is, says, no, it's okay. I'll watch from the stands. Like, I'd rather you guys get this win for Cisco. I do love, though, that they're all in protest. They're like, you don't just kick someone off the team because they're not good. This is our family. We stick together. Pretty immature of Cisco to kick him off just because he wasn't good. Who cares? Stick him in a position where hardly any fly balls will come his way. It'll be fine. He can still or be on first, the team. a first baseman coach like O'Brien is, yeah. you know, or something. Exactly. Yeah, or or uh, towel boy. <laughs> You know, or a bat boy. Yeah, a bat boy. Yeah, he would. Yeah, at the end of this episode, Cisco gets kicked out of the game because he touches Odo, who's the umpire, (laughs) and he's sitting in the stands with Rom, and he finally is like, you know what? Screw this. I need to do the right thing here and not care about the score because the Vulcans are beating them like crazy. The score is like, what, 10 nothing. And yeah, yeah, and so he knows they're not going to pull off a victory, but he realizes what the true victory is, is like, if we can get a good solid run in, then let's do it. And so he puts his faith into Rom. I love that because he gets the crowd going. He programs the crowd to come back and everyone's cheering for Rom. He gives him the exact amount of confidence that he knows Rom needs to succeed And he does. He bunts, even if it's unintentionally, he bunts and gets it to first so they can score and get a run in. It is just, oh my God, what a victory. That just feels like one of the greatest moments, especially they're all lifting up Rom on his shoulders and hugging each other. It's so satisfying, even though they didn't win the game. 
that's not the point. And I love that that's this lesson that Cisco learns is this is about team bonding. And Cisco apparently has taken at least every single crew member to a holodeck baseball game before. So I imagine he's sitting in the, in the stands with Worf and they're cheering, you know, for the Giants or whatever and mm-hmm. all these different characters. And so they, I think it was Lita who said, we really understand that those are like bonding moments since we really want to be a part of this team bonding. And it's just so cool to see that that is what brings them all together is baseball. Baseball is my favorite sport to watch and like one of my very favorite sports in general. And so I agree. It's such a great way to bond with people. I love how they celebrate each other in this episode too. Ezri yeah. does this freaking incredible flip because I forgot that I think Tarias or one of her other hosts was a gymnast. Uh, yes. <laughs> and so she can do these crazy flips. She did a fancy Dan out there and <laughs> caught the ball before it became a home run. Like, And we see a bunch of people making these really great plays and how much the team celebrates them for it. Like, Worf and Nog pick up on the game so quickly, which makes entirely like every ounce of sense. (laughs) I love them. Mm -hmm. I also just am impressed the fact that they were able to get one run at all because they didn't even know this game two weeks ago. (laughs) I know that Jake is upset at the end of the episode because he's like, God, I let 10 runs in. (laughs) But Cisco's so, Ben is so proud of him. He's like, man, if they hadn't been, if they hadn't been Vulcans, you would have only let two or three three by yeah you know jake is a really good pitcher like jake is a really good pitcher (laughs) i love that cisco finally is able to get his head out of the clouds of this revenge Mm -hmm. and just enjoy the moment and realize okay i'm a grown man i'm past this old rivalry but solok is not over it and he's so annoyed that they're celebrating and that makes it even more satisfying yes this last scene at quarks where they all get to celebrate and solok is like you are only drinking to manufactured triumph and they're all like to manufactured triumph and they like take a drink <laughs> I really relate to that right now. We all need some manufactured triumph in our life right now. So I think, yeah, it just reminds me to celebrate the things that may appear to other people as losses because you can always find a silver lining, essentially. You know, yeah, maybe they didn't win the game, but they had an incredible run and Rom got to get back on the team. They all had a bunch of fun. They all learned more about baseball like you can't really ask for more than that (laughs) and I think that sometimes it's just about lowering your expectations not not even in a bad way but just in a way where you can love the moment you're in and see the important parts of that moment and that's what I've been really trying to do recently in this horrible time that we're living in is just to remember that the moments of small victories are so essential Yeah. As a wise hologram once said, you only have one life and you got to go out and live it. Yep. Precisely. Thanks, Vic. (laughs) This one's for Vic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love that man. (laughs) Wow. Well, we have now come to the end of our Love and Affection episode featuring Deep Space Nine's marvelous cast. And Ashlyn, I just want to say thank you for taking this Love and Affection journey with me and it's just been so fun 
to go through these different episodes through a love and affection lens. And I cannot tell you how excited I am for Voyager. This is going to be so fun. I don't really know what episodes we're going to choose, but it's going to be fun. (laughs) I already know I'm going to pass out at all the Janeway and Chakotay scenes. I'm ready to die this week as I watch and just be so annoyed that they're not together. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Ashlyn's passing out now. (laughs) I'm already passing out. This is a preview for next week. Also, some exciting things to look forward to. Right now, as this episode is out and you are listening to it in your ears, there is also a review of the third episode of the animated series out on our Patreon. And you can now switch over to that and listen to that review if you would like. If you donate any amount per month on our Patreon, you can literally listen to a review of the animated series. And we've also done reviews of season one of Lower Decks, and we had a Star Trek trivia series as well. So you will not be missing out. Go to patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. There will be even more reviews of the animated series because that's what we're doing right now until the episodes run out. It's been so much fun. And I just can't wait. I'm actively thinking right now about the next animated series episode we're about to watch. So, oh, me too. I yeah. even just seeing the cover of Kirk with a little like thing on his forehead. Can't wait. Super excited. Oh, I'm freaking <laughs> out. Yeah. I also want to return your very sweet sentiment, Rihanna, and agree with you. Thank you for taking this journey with me, this podcast journey, this life journey. Filter joy to you all. Uh, Burn those renewables and live the best life you can. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week for the fourth episode of our Love and Affection series, where Ashton and Rihanna discuss the loving relationships in Star Trek Voyager. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. If you would like to become a patron, you can donate any amount per month to have exclusive access to our reviews of Lower Decks, Star Trek Trivia, and the Star Trek Animated Series. You can unlock these perks by donating any amount per month on our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Worst Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire. No one in the Star Trek universe knows how to tie a necktie because they're all used to Klingons.